Well, good morning, everyone. We're so glad that you are here with us here at Grace Church. Uh, we're so excited about the fact that um, you've chosen to hear to worship the Lord from beginning to end, and uh, we're grateful. We're grateful for those who are here at Facebook Live. We're excited about the fact that, that you have decided to join us this morning. We're in our second week of our sermon series, Living Beyond the Grave. Yes, it does have something to do with our message about Easter, but Easter should be every day for us. Amen? It should be. Um, each day we celebrate Christ resurrected from the dead. It's called new life, and God has injected in us a new life because when we've trusted in Christ, we've asked God to forgive us of our sin, to give us a new life. And the new life is that when we pass away, because we will, it's inevitable. We're gonna, two things are inevitable in our lives. We're going to be judged and we're going to pass away. And when we pass from this life, the new life is what we already have in Christ and what's yet to come, the fullness thereof in his presence. So if you're getting just a little glimpse right now, you can't imagine the presence of God and the joy and the peace and the hope that you receive each day knowing that no matter what you're going through, he's going to carry you through it. And you can have a smile on your face when you're hurting and you're in pain. And so that's where we're going to talk a little bit about what does that all mean today. Um, we're going to call it today sweet redemption because we're going to talk about sweet revenge, but we're going to talk about sweet redemption because Christ saved us and redeemed us from the past of our position and our past to now our present and what hopes to be our future. And so as we think about it, last week I shared with you a, a chart here, and I just wanted to go over it quickly for review. As you see it, um, you'll see that it, it's, it's a research from Barner.org that shares with people from outside of our community, which we'd call the world, and how they view us as Christians. So it's how we would also understand, too, how the Christian community represents Jesus to the world. So as you see these four boxes, I just want to give your attention to that top left because they were asked, how many Christians have pharisaical attitudes and a Christ-like action? So it was explained to them, and they answered, and they said about 25% of those Christians who have a pharisaical attitude, legalistic attitude, one who doesn't present God as one who's redeemed or compassionate, but one who lives by rules only, but yet lives somehow a Christ-like action. So in their heart, something's wrong, but they're doing what they're supposed to do on the outside. Jesus referred to the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs because of their hearts being far away from God, but yet for some reason they would present themselves as being godly. Now, this is what the world is seeing. And on your top, or excuse me, on your bottom right, it has Christ-like attitudes, that which is going inside, but somehow it just comes out like a pharisaical action. So you might say inside of you, yeah, you know, I love Jesus, and I want to walk with him, and I want him to work in my heart. I want him, I intend for him to change my life, but for some reason it doesn't come out that way. It comes out more a legalistic approach where you're still working with the do's and the don'ts of Christianity, as what we would call it, the rules. I'm a rule keeper, so you need to be a rule keeper. But then if you can see that toward up, if you would look up to your right, your top right, it says, 
How do they see us with a Christ-like attitude and action? Christ-like in the heart, and then it's displayed that way. Not so good, because that is the smallest of all four boxes. 23% is the largest of which we would see people would see us that way. Then you go to the bottom left, and you see pharisaical attitudes and actions. Wow, that's how they see us. I mean, the, the, the largest amount there is 53%. So more than half of Christians are displaying a pharisaical attitude and action. Meaning what they're doing is they're living according to the standard of what I talked about last week, perfectionism. And everyone needs to keep the rules in order to be pleasing before God. No compassion, no mercy, no sense of loving your enemies. It's you don't love me well, I'm not going to love you well. That's pharisaical action and attitudes. So this week, what we're going to talk about, again, as we, as we look at this grave, we understand what it represents. All of you saying, yo, dude, that's the rolling stone, man. It rolled away, dude, and uh, Jesus came out of the tomb, and he came out of the grave because sin represents that hole right there, right there where the tomb is. But Jesus rose from the dead. So he took with us his sin, our sin, he took upon the cross. So we're not to live in the grave anymore. We have to live beyond the grave. But what did Jesus do by dying on the cross and the sin has remained in the grave? We talked about it last week, the three aspects of the atonement. One being perfectionism, that there's the curse of the law. Second is there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So we're going to talk about that. The last one is a cup of wrath. We'll talk about that next week. But Criticism and condemnation, which could lead to revenge. And so we have to ask the question, what is a critical spirit? And we ask that question. So I'm going to give you a definition of that. Critical spirit, and this is from an article that I read, is an obsessive attitude of criticism and fault-finding, which seeks to tear others down. Not the same as what is sometimes called constructive criticism, the only criticism that is ever constructive is that which is expressed in love to build up, but not to tear down. It is always expressed face to face, never behind their back. It goes on and continues to say that the person with a critical spirit usually dwells on the negative, seeks for flaws rather than good. They're a complainer, usually always upset, and generally have a problem and a complaint about something. They often have little control of their tongue, <laughs> their temper, and how tendencies for gossip and slander. By the way, if you're here for the first time, welcome to Grace Church where we want to make you feel great today. But here's the thing. This is a critical spirit. We all have it. We can't say, I don't have a critical spirit. We tend to have it. Some are more profound than others. Because it could be deemed as a personality trait, or could it be sin in the grave? We'll hope to un just to unpack that a little bit. But what causes this critical spirit? Insecurity. Criticism is often a subconscious means to elevate one's own self-image. By putting down others, they are inwardly trying to feel more important or that they know more. Another one is negativity. A bad attitude. And a negative view of life. A person may have unconfessed sin in their lives. Or harbor unforgiveness or bitterness towards someone who has offended them. We can hold on to that. Each one of us 
have the capacity of doing that. We have all been through that in our lives. We've been offended. We hold on to unforgiveness. We plot out revenge. We plot out a plan in our mind. Hmm, let me see how I can get you. And you start to think of all those things. And I'll get your dog Toto too. And we just start to think of all those things that go in our mind. Because we think that by, by being critical, condemning, we'll get back at them. And we'll say, just wait till I get back at you. In our minds. But we smile. We say, good to see you. So nice to have you. And that's what ends up happening. But we have to realize that God has not called us to that. In fact, I really believe a critical spirit is a form of revenge that results in unforgiveness. It's that form of revenge that moves towards that unforgiveness that we, it's subconscious. We don't even know that it's there. We don't even understand that it's there. So does a critical spirit lead to condemnation? I mean, does it? Well, I think it does. But there's many forms, what we call of condemnation. There's objective condemnation, which would be in a setting, in a context of a judicial setting, where there's a judge, there's a lawyer, there's an accuser, and one is sentenced according to the law. So it's, it's an objective condemnation. We can't get out of it. There's no way. We can't rationalize ourselves out of it. There's no justifying. But then there's a subjective condemnation, one that is a standard of a self-perfect or just a perception or an upbringing, a self-perception or an upbringing. So you have some kind of ethnic background or upbringing that could be subjective. You can hear a voice of possibly a father or a mother. It's a story. Matt and his friends were caught stealing stuff from a department store. They made it past the cashier, but the security guard was waiting there for them. Uh, just as they were about to get out, and they were sent to the manager's office. How many can say that they might have, you might have been caught there doing that once in your life? Uh, I won't talk about that. So he never heard the end of the incident. Every time he made a mistake at home, his father reminded him of what he had done. You're a colossal failure, he would say. You got no values whatsoever. You're a liar and a thief, and you have never amounted to anything. When Matt was 20 years old, he was depressed. And believed no one as worthless as I am should feel good about himself. Because he was reminded over and over and over again how awful he was. We don't even know we do that as parents. We're children and we receive that from our parents. I receive that often. Unfortunately, I lived in a home that was not what we would call a kind, uplifting home. One that would be encouraging. But unfortunately, I get a slap in the head and say, hey, yo, stop it, you know. But here's the thing, though. As I was not encouraged, God was beginning to set up a rescue for me. But it stuck with me until this day where I'm 52 years old still hearing the voice of my father. And my father passed away over 20 years ago. My mom passed away four years ago, and I still hear the voices. Unfortunately, it can be condemnation. I have a brother who has, unfortunately, a biological brother who has heard that voice all of his life and still is struggling. Because it's paralyzing. You can't get yourself out of it. Only God can help you through it. It's a journey. And this is the challenge that continues to move forward. Because here's what the premise of condemnation is. I want to read something from a, an awesome book, Search for Significance. It says, those who fail 
are unworthy of love and deserve to be punished. That's what condemnation is. A critical spirit, when we set up, we say, listen, here's a standard. And if you don't perform to my standard, guess what? You're unworthy of my love and you have failed. And you're unworthy and you deserve to be punished. That's what condemnation says. God set up the standard, right? Perfection. We have failed to meet it. God has every right to punish us and ban us as what we would say in eternity separated from him. Thankfully, God, there's no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. So if there's no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus, and we know that, and we're Christians, and we've been set free from condemnation in a critical spirit, and it, we shouldn't be living in the grave, then why do we at times? Why is it that we live at times wanting to hold people accountable for what they've done to us? When a teenager becomes pregnant, the single mother struggles with the teenager's failure or her failure as a mother. That's what happens. We feel superior when we could blame someone else, especially a parent, a boss, a pastor, or even an officer. Because we feel better when we can tell those who are above us, we know better. It feels good. We feel more superior. When a daughter has been sexually abused, she will take the blame to protect her daddy because she doesn't want anyone to take him away. It happens. Abuse is all across the board, physical, sexual, verbal abuse. That's what it comes down to. This is a sobering, sobering message that we have to realize that comes across to us. I love what he says here. Again, Robert McGee, Robert McGee in uh, Search for Significance, he says, if we believe that performance reflects one value and that failure makes one unacceptable and unworthy of love, then we should usually feel completely justified in condemning those who fail, including ourselves, which is called self-condemnation. You could hear statements like, I'm stupid. What an idiot. I can't do anything correct. Have you catch yourself doing that? I smile because we all do. Ah, stupid Bruno. Why did you do that again? Ah, man, you messed it all up. Now you're going to hear it from your wife. And your kids are going to give it to you too. Come on. Yeah, you can have a conversation with yourself. You ever try it? I mean, it's pretty cool. <laughs> but here's the thing. When you have a conversation with yourself, you realize you're condemning yourself. We all do it. We all sit there talking to ourselves saying, oh, man. Because no one has to beat me up more than I can beat up my own self. And that's true. So we have to understand that when our condemnation of people, including ourselves, determines our self-worth. We're living in the grave. We're living in the grave. Because a critical spirit that leads to condemnation can also lead to revenge. And we have to see that God has even given us some examples of what that looks like in the Old Testament. Really quickly, Old Testament examples of revenge are simple. One is Cain and Abel. Cain, we understand, was a man, him and his brother. They brought an offering unto God. Abel brought a better offering than Cain. Cain was upset. He was angry. And then God had to confront him. And in verse 6 of, of Genesis chapter 4, he says, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. I love God. He goes, sin is crouching at your door. It's right there ready if you don't do well. Because then he goes on to say this. He says, 
its desire is contrary to you. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Just like in Genesis 3, 16, it was saying how a woman wanted to rule over man, but God stopped that because he created man, then woman. And so he's saying the same thing. This word desire in the Hebrew means to control and dominate. Cain refused to confess his sin and instead took revenge on his own brother. And how do we see that now? Genesis 4, 8. It's, it's simply stated. He says, Cain spoke to Abel and he said, yo, man, come on over here. I got to talk to you. It's kind of like, hey, yo, Vinny, bring him over over here. I got to talk to him. Okay, come here. Come here. You kind of bring him over there, right? And he's like, oh, okay, hey, bro, what you want to talk about? What you want to talk about? And he took him out. Cain rose up against his brother and Abel was killed. Abel was killed. That's where you see revenge at its worst. Killing his own brother. Now, this might be extreme. You're saying, well, you know, I wouldn't do that to my brother. Well, I'll tell you right now. I'm going to be honest with you. When me and my brother grew up. Every day we had a fist fight. It was just, it was, it was just, it was, it happened. This is two brothers, right? I mean, if you have two brothers, you're going to go at it once in a while. We just went at it, went at it often. And, um, and we, we went short of don't punch each other in the face, okay? I broke that rule one day. So here's the thing. You have brothers, and they're going to commit any kind of revengeful task. There's a tactic going on in our hearts. Here's the second one that we understand, too. There's Sarai and Hagar. Sarah and Hagar, we understand that um, Sarai wanted to have a child. She couldn't. And Abram wanted to please his wife. And so she said, hey, why don't you get a mistress, a servant, servant lady, and we'll have a child through her. Hagar gets the servant, gets pregnant, we understand. And then she despises Sarai. Which in the Hebrew means that she demeaned, demoted Sarai as the wife. She says, I'm conceiving with the child now, so I'm going to have the child, so now I'm the wife. And so it, it created this, this conflict between Sarai and Hagar. Well, Sarai wasn't going to listen to the end of it. So in 16, 5 and 6, it says, And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to you, to your embrace, and when she saw she had conceived, she looked with, with on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, she goes on to say to Sarai, hey, you know what? May the Lord, she goes, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. You know, when Sarai said, may the wrong done to me be on you, the word is violence in Hebrew. You know what that word is in Hebrew? Hamas. Interesting. So this violence that she wanted, that was on her, she wanted to come upon him. That's condemnation. That's revenge. She even goes all so far to say that, you know what? God, let God judge you. Between you and me, meaning let God judge you because I'm not at fault here. But she was the one who wanted to have a child. She was the one who insisted on Abram. He's the one who listened. See what happened? He listened to the wife and he got in trouble. But now he gets in trouble because he wants to lead his wife. But he can't because he gives in. He goes, your servant is in your power. Why would he do that? Because there was such dysfunctionality. His mind, his conscience was not clear. And Sarai went further and saying, you know what? I'm going to deal with her harshly. I'm going to mistreat her so she can leave. 
such revenge, such condemnation and criticism. See, Romans 14, 10 through 12 says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. The word judgment, passing judgment, means an unfavorable judgment upon, criticize, find fault with, and condemn. Interesting. Because when we pass judgment, we criticize, we condemn, and we set up revenge in our hearts. That's living in the grave. That's something Christ died for. He didn't die He died for it to say that we would no longer condemn because he no longer condemns us. So if he no longer condemns us, why would we want to adopt criticism and condemnation and revenge? But we subconsciously do it. We don't mean, not admittedly do we do it, but we subconsciously do it. And we find ourselves stuck. So if God doesn't want us to live that way, how does he want us to live? I believe he wants us to live with compassion and mercy and grace. Some would say, well, wait a minute. If you're too gracious, then you're enabling. No, because grace is accountable. Compassion is accountable. We see that in Exodus. And so we see the understanding that God is saying, you know what? I called you to compassion. I'll deal with judgment. I'm God. And so God's called us to a compassionate heart. So what we have to see is when we are compassionate, we have a compassionate heart. We have to be willing to do a couple of things here. We're going to look quickly at this passage that we're familiar with when Jesus was was confronted with how to judge the woman who committed adultery in John 8. But here are a couple of things. One is that we want to forgive, not find fault. We want to forgive rather than finding faults in people. That's how we can show compassion. Because we've been forgiven, we can show forgiveness towards someone else. And when you're going to say, well, wait wait a minute, Bruno. You're telling me i got to let them get away with it? No. I'm saying let God deal with it. He's better at it than you and I. We're going to be condemning. <laughs> we are going to be critical. We're going to set revenge in our hearts. Let God deal with it. He already did. He sent his son. He's the only way. To the Father. Let him d- deal with it because he's forgiven our sin. Let's be the recipients. Let's be the ones who take that forgiveness and show others. Not point out faults. That's why when you see here in John 8, 3 through 7, let's just read that together. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, like they had nothing else better to do. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say, Lord? This is this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, He stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Wow, this is powerful. This is powerful. Why? Because here's the thing. The Pharisees are a bunch of religious leaders that were the Sanhedrin that were were the leaders of Judaism at the time of the first century. And here they were as though they had nothing else better to do but to point out a woman who was caught in adultery. Now, in the law, there are a couple of references in the Old Testament. Whenever you catch someone in adultery, they would have to be stoned to death or put to death. Now, by stoning or, in other cases, some other way. 
But here are two things. There has to be witnesses of the act. And two, there has to be um, a people who recognize and see how important it is that the man has to be there. So the man is not there, and there are no true witnesses there. These are Pharisees who brought this woman, and they were going to put her out there just to see if they can put what we call a catch-22 on Jesus. So here Jesus is in a catch-22 because he has to make a decision. If he goes along with the Pharisees and says, yes, have her stoned to death for, for committing adultery, which he would never do. And of that time, it wasn't a prevalent thing to do. It wasn't popular. So here, if he gave in to that, then he would have to deal with the Roman prefect because only the Romans could deal with capital punishment at the time. So Jesus didn't want to do that. But then if he said, no, no, let her go, he would seem lawless, not a rabbi, and then the Pharisees would have something against him, and they would come after him and try to destroy him even more because they were already plotting to kill him, so they would have what we would call evidence. And here in the, in the Old Testament, it was clear that he needed to have witnesses, and he needed to have the man present. But the man's nowhere to be found because the Pharisees didn't care about the sanctity of the episode. They could have cared less about it. They just wanted to call out Jesus. And so what they did is they tried to call him out, but it didn't work. They were ready to throw stones, but Jesus had to answer them. And they said, what do you say? So Jesus is sitting there. Why? Jesus is setting up forgiveness. He's going to forgive this woman because he's the only one who can truly condemn her. He's God. Judgment has been given to him by the Father, John 5, 22. So he's the one who can condemn her. But what's happened is he's sitting here now just kind of plotting out what he's going to tell them. And here he sits with this hope of saying, you know what? He didn't call her out. He didn't find her faults. He was ready to forgive her. How about you and I? What are we called to do? Ephesians 4.32 tells us that. But verse 31 says this, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Why? Because that grieves the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit that lives in us can't be used. You and I can't be used when we're living in condemnation and critical spirit. We can't be used of God when we're plotting out revenge. God is saying this in verse 32. He's saying, no, don't do that. He goes, be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. So we have to look for forgiveness, not pointing out or finding faults. Number two, accept rather than attack. Accept rather than attack. God has accepted us in Christ Jesus. He's accepted this woman. He's accepted us. You and I don't need to be reminded 24-7 of how awful we are and how often we mess up and how often we sin and how often we make faults and mistakes. We don't need to be reminded over and over and over again because when we do that, then it makes us feel better than the other person. God's not called us to that, as I stated earlier. So how would you like to be treated? If you make a mistake or you fail or you sin, would you like someone to call you out? Would you like someone to keep reminding you over and over and over again? Hey, wife, do you want to keep reminding your husband over and over and over again to hopefully manipulate them to do what you want them to do? Husband, are you reminding your wife over and over and over again so you get them and manipulate them to get them to do what you want them to do? Hey, child, teenager, older, older child, if you're a parent right now, are you manipulating and trying to 
control the situation to where you're trying to get your mother or father to do something, or you're trying to get your sibling to do something, or your friend to do something, or your boss to do something. You get the picture? God's not called us to that ministry. He called us to accept people, to reach out, to minister to them, to start a relationship, to accept them to the way that they are, that it's a journey, that just because they're not where you want them to be doesn't mean that you're the standard or I'm the standard, but that ultimately we have to work with them over and over and over again until we say, hey, God's telling us this isn't working out. We have to continue to encourage ourselves to accept people and build relationships rather than calling them out and criticizing them. This is a challenging thing because ultimately what reflects the glory of God is when we accept people, not attack them. In fact, we, this is a sobering thought. When we attack someone, we're attacking God. You know God's our defender. And if we are in Christ and Jesus saved us from our sin and we're alive in Christ, then guess what? He's going to defend that person we're attacking. <laughs> and if someone else attacks us, I often say, Lord, you got this, right? Lord, I don't have to worry about nothing, right? Lord, okay, you got this. I'm leaving. And I just walk away, right, because I'm, I'm going to hand it over to God to handle it because he handles it much better than I do. Because if I try to attack, I only make things worse. But if I accept the person, then I lay them before the throne of God. And I say, God, I need you to do a work that only you can. Number three, and this is important too. God wants to rescue us rather than ruin us. We got to, if God wants to rescue us, then we need to be about rescuing. So we have a compassionate heart and we're willing to rescue rather than ruin someone. God has rescued us. He's not left us in the shame. You know, it's so interesting. The accusers there, were they just sat there. And what happened was when they sat there, they were left in their shame. Because when they tried to shame the woman, tried to show fault in her and her adultery, Jesus just left them right there saying, hey, the one who has sin, cast the first stone. Without sin, cast the first stone. If you're perfect, hey, man, go for it. We knew the answer to that. We're not. And see, that's what happens. God is not about ruining us. He's about rescuing us. We know that we are condemned. We don't have to do a ministry of condemnation. We should be doing a ministry of reconciliation. We shouldn't be a ministry of criticism. We should be a ministry of building people up and being committed to raise them up in Christ. But again, you'll say, but wait a minute, how are they going to get away with it? No, let God deal with them. God will deal with them well. We've got to be about a ministry of compassion and rescuing. You know, John 3, 17, 18, I love this passage. It says this, because we forget about 17 and 18. We always know 16. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Not in universalism, but through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already at the point of conception. The Bible makes that clear, that we were born in sin. And that because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God, Jesus. So this way, we stand condemned before God. So Jesus never encouraged us to be in a ministry of condemnation. He's always encouraged us to be in a ministry of compassion. 
And we do that by simply saying, God, use me. Here I am, a light. I stand before you, God. Give me what you can. I am your vessel. Use me whenever way you can that I can reach out and minister to people, to be a vessel to reach the world for the kingdom of God, that God would use me in ways to reach people who don't believe they're loved, don't believe. They stand condemned. They're self-condemned. They're hurting. They're in pain. They don't know how to get through it. And we have the answer in Jesus Christ, and we can be used of God and be compassionate and reach out to people and look like a radar. And we would just be able to look and see who we can reach out to when we see that we have the ministry of reconciliation. God's called us to this. We must be compassionate for it. And that's what Jesus did. It's very obvious that Jesus did because he left it. It says, now Jesus stood up and he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go. From now on, sin no more. See, Jesus just simply said, I have the right to condemn you, and I don't condemn you. Move on. Go on with your journey. That is mercy, grace, compassion, forgiveness, hope, eternal life that, hey, if this kind of God is going to give me this, I want it. I want it. 10 times, 100 times more, because I'm going to continue to mess up, and God's going to continue to offer me forgiveness in Christ, because that's the beauty of God. That's where he holds us. See, when someone criticizes me, condemns me, sets up revenge, the first thing that comes out, I want to take the matters into my own hands. I don't want to give it to God. I'm just like, God, you're too compassionate. Let me deal with this dude. Let me go Italian style, and then I'll just kind of go after them, and I'll say, yo, man, I'm going to get you. Here I come. And I think I'm the wrath of God. And God's like, you still haven't learned, have you? No, Lord, because I want it done now. God's saying, stop taking matters into your own hands. Give it over to me. That's what I think we need to learn. If we can learn anything from God, we must not take matters into our own hands. We must hand them over to God. Why? Because Jesus showed this example. Jesus showed us this example. 1 Peter 2.23, when Peter was confronted with Christians being killed for the name of just being a Christian, he reminded them what Jesus had to go through and suffer. He was the silent, innocent lamb. And in verse 23 of 1 Peter 2, it says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Meaning when he was abused, he didn't abuse in return. When he was verbally abused, he didn't verbally abuse in return. When he was physically abused, he didn't try to set up a plot to physically abuse them. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judge, judges justly. That's what he did. See, in these, in the imperfect, in the Greek means he continually did this. He continually when you, you know, when it says in Matthew, he struck his face, turned the other cheek, he turned the other cheek. When he says, love your enemies, I mean, that is the most difficult thing in the world. I'm having a difficult time just loving Christians, let alone my enemies. But it, that's what it comes down to. But here, Jesus li- leaves us an amazing example because he lived it. And he didn't threaten anyone. He could have. He could have said, you just wait till I get you at the, at the judgment seat. You just wait. I'm going to get you. No, Jesus didn't even do that because he could, and he'd still be God. But the beauty of God is that he didn't. Quick story. 
when I was a young pastor, 26 years old, I just started. There was no senior pastor. They appointed me as the associate pastor, youth pastor. And I was in this church, and I was there for about nine months to a year. I started to slowly change things. Well, one of the couples didn't like that because they, they, they really loved the former pastor, and they thought uh, any other pastor coming would never live up to his standards. So they didn't like me very much. I, I was kind, kind to them, but they didn't like me. So they wrote a four-page uh, paper to the board, to the deacons, Independent Baptist Church, and I was in there. And one of my friends, my best friend was in there, one of my youth leaders, uh, another youth leader was on the board too, and they were livid. They were angry. They were frustrated. And he was just, he was just frustrated and angry. And he was just, he was just speaking it out. And he was just telling me he was getting shaken. I said, yo, just stood there. I said, you need to shut up, man. I said, I'm serious, man. You need to shut up because you're doing exactly what this guy is doing. You're not doing anything different. You're condemning him. You're criticizing him. God didn't call us to that ministry. God didn't call us to gossip. God called us to pray. Let's give this to God and hand it over to him and see what he does. Are you sure? I said, well, I'm sure, man. I'm sure. Let's give this to God. We prayed and we prayed. Every day we prayed. And you know what? I gave it to God. Four months later, I had to look at this guy every Sunday. I smiled and I was praying. God gave me a heart for him, a compassion for him. He came up to me. We had a lot of events for the youth, spent a lot of money, $30 for an event back in 1995 and 6 was a lot of money. And uh, he comes up to me with an envelope. Four months later, I said, oh, what's this? He says, it's enough for two students for that event. You asked if, some, if you can donate. I want to donate. I looked at him and said, wow. I said, that's awesome, man. Thanks. He goes, I'm sorry. I, I gather you know about that letter. I said, I know all about it. He goes, I'm sorry for the, what I did to you. And we hugged each other. I mean, the dude didn't even want to hug, but he, he came in. and he, I said, come on, bro, bring it in. And he came and he brought it in, and we hugged. And the dude ended up being one of my friends gave it over to God. And I was an example because I was ministering and discipling my friend. He saw that and saw what prayer could do when, I, when we give it over to God. That's what Jesus did. He gave it over to God. Watch this example. Christ's example is he handed it over to Pilate. He was handed over to Pilate. Pilate handed him over to the Jews. And then he handed himself over to the Father because he was confident in their plan the plan of salvation. God knows what he's doing. He's capable of handling anyone who attacks us or tries to condemn us or criticize us or set revenge. Let him take care of it. I've seen many examples in my life. I can't be any more passionate, almost as passionate as Ramsey. But I'll tell you something. Let me be honest with you. If you can just hand it over to God, what he can do in that midst, because you're saying, God, I trust that you can handle this. You have a tough marriage. You say, God, I believe you can restore my marriage, because that's his intention. That's his passion. That's what he wants. you got to believe him for it. God, I, I'm, I'm really struggling with my child. Here, Lord, help me with my child. I give her to you. I give them to you. Help me, Lord. God wants to do it. But you got to hand it over to God. You can't do it. I can't do it. There's no way we can do it, but God can do it through us. But yeah, we have to be willing to trust him. It's called trust. It's leaning on, sitting on, and leaning on God that he can get you through it. Because that's what he's calling us to. That's faith. Don't live in the grave anymore. Get out of that grave. Live beyond it. Say, God, I want a compassion for your people. I want a compassion for the world. I want to reach the world for the kingdom of God and see someone go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light of his son. That should be our passion every day. And we should be excited about that. 
Because we don't want to live in the grave anymore. We want to live for the kingdom of God. So what about you? I want to do that. I want to see God do a work. Easter is an opportunity for you to just invite someone. We have invite cards. Take a handful of them. Not just one. A handful of them. And pray over them. And say, God, use me. I want to reach someone for your kingdom's sake. God, I want to live beyond the grave. No more living in the grave. It's stinky. It's smelly. No more grave clothes. I want to live fresh and new. Live a new life for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, this is a very sobering message. Very challenging message. Because we are all guilty of being critical and condemning and revengeful. But Lord, thank you for your son. Thank you that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Even when we subconsciously do it and we don't admittedly do it, you're still there saying, I love you, son. I love you, daughter. I want to use you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for that mercy and that grace that you offer to us. Today, Lord, may you continue to use us. May we share Christ with a neighbor, start a relationship with someone at work, build that up with prayer, and see what we can, just see what you can do and what we can be a part of. Oh God, I just pray that you would give us a compassionate heart for those who are far away, for our brothers and sisters in Christ, and to show forgiveness rather than finding fault, accepting a person rather than attacking them, and Lord, rescuing someone rather than trying to ruin them. Lord, I just pray that we would take matters out of our own hands and leave them to you. God, truly help us today, we pray in Jesus' name.